It's always a privilege to worship our God with you and also share God's word with you. As we resume our study of Isaiah this morning, we're studying chapter 49, which is comprised of two main sections. The first section is verses from 1 through 13, uh, which is a conversation between the Lord God and the Lord's servant. And then the second part of uh, uh, chapter 49 is from verses 14 through 26, which is a conversation between the Lord and Zion, which represents Israel. So we will focus our attention to verses 1 through 7, the first part of uh, the first section, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll read verse 13, which concludes the first section, and then we will be reading verses 14 through 26, uh, now 14 through 18, uh, the part of the second section. So as we read this passage, I encourage you to pay a particular attention to verse 4, which is a servant's speech, and also verse 14, Zion's speech, and the Lord's responses to both especially verse 7 and verse 15. So uh, let, I, let me sort of read that and please follow along. Isaiah 14, 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely... My cause is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivals of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Then verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, exalt, O earth, break forth mountains into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. But verse 14, but, but, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman 
forget her nursing child, or show no compassion for the child of her womb. Even these might forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders outdo your destroyers, and those who laid you waste go away from you. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you shall put all of them on like an ornament. And like a bride, you shall bind them on. The word of the Lord. The first section of our passage, verses 1 through 13, is traditionally called the second servant song in Isaiah. Isaiah first introduces God's servant in chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, as God's faithful agent who will restore Israel and establish justice on the entire world. Our passage, chapter 49, Isaiah's second servant song, starts with God's calling of the servant, God's preparation of the servant, and God's glory in the servant in the first three verses. Given the very confident tone in these three verses, we might expect a triumphal ministry of the servant in the following verses. But the second servant song does not progress that predictably in verse 4. The servant himself says in verse 4, the first part of verse 4, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. What a surprising contrast to the previous verses expressing the servant's own sense of vulnerability and even powerlessness. If the first three verses and the rest of the servant's song describe the servant as someone more than human, especially in light of the servant's mission of bringing restoration of Israel and salvation to the end of the earth in verse 6, this verse Verse 4, the first part of verse 4, characterizes the servant as someone no less than human. And we must not bypass this verse. As we all know, feelings of frustration, futility, and helplessness are all too familiar in human lives. And they are the very part of the burden the servant came to bear. As our Old Testament scholar John Oswald notes, however, if the servant would experience the depth of our humanity to the fullest, including our genuine vulnerability and powerlessness, the servant also knew who he was and whose he was. And he trusted God in the second part of verse 4. As the same scholar Oswald observes, we must not miss this dual aspect, the two-sidedness of the verse 4. And I quote, On the one hand, 
we think that to admit feelings of futility is not to trust God. On the other hand, we often believe that if we really trusted God, we would never have feelings of futility. But the servant shows that neither reality is incompatible with the other, end of quote. The servant felt discouraged with a sense of emptiness in his mission, and yet surely he trusted the Lord regarding the final outcome of his mission, as the second part of verse 4 and 5 affirm. As a matter of fact, God says to his servant that the servant's mission to restore Israel is too small for God's servant. The servant's ultimate mission is not only to restore Israel, but to be the salvation to the whole world, as in verse 6. Now, if you are following along, uh, especially you know, with your scripture, uh, hopefully open, now this duality or the two-sidedness of the servant continues in verse 7. The Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, who is the Holy One, says the servant, who is the deeply despised one, the slave of rulers, abhorred by the nations. This series of descriptors of the servant paints a picture of lowliness, helplessness, and even worthlessness of the servant. Oswald sees the immediate and intimate connection between Israel and the servant here. Israel had already experienced all of these conditions because of its idolatry and rebellion in Isaiah, and therefore Israel failed to be God's vehicle of salvation for the nations. Then the servant who is functioning as the ideal Israel in verse three, as in verse 3, has now come to identify with Israel and all the world's outcasts, which Israel represents. And through this identification, the servant will give himself to be for Israel, what Israel could never be in itself. As a result, in the end, the kings and princes will pay homage to the once despised servant because of the faithfulness of the Holy One of Israel, the one who has called and chosen the servant. Therefore, God's faithfulness guarantees not servant's glory along the way, but servant's glory at the end of the way, as Oswald notes. With this guarantee, the second servant song ends in verse 13 with an exuberant praise of the whole creation to the Lord for his mighty work of salvation through the servant. Then, then, how does Zion, Israel, respond to the Lord's great work through the servant in verse 14? As you see, it says, 
The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. What a stunning response, especially against what just preceded that verse. Look at the second part of verse 13, which says, For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. But God's very people, Zion, denies that that's what they are actually experiencing as a reality. Being exile in exile in Babylon, the people of Judah lost their homes, communities, social status, and nation. Overwhelmed by their own desolation and wretchedness, they are maybe understandably feeling abandoned and forgotten by their God. Before we quickly move on to the next verses, where God affirms God's unfailing love for Zion in the strongest possible imageries, I want us to linger in verse 14 a little bit. Have you ever felt, have you ever thought that God has forsaken you and forgotten you? Do you sometimes feel or think as though prophetic words of comfort don't go deep enough to address the reality of what you are experiencing, just like Zion says in verse 14? These are difficult questions. If you have not, praise God. But if you have, or if you do, you are not alone. In the book of Psalms, we have 150 Psalms. According to scholars of the Old Testament, at least the third of 150 Psalms, at least 50, or even up to 65 Psalms can be categorized as psalms of lament, both individual and collective. In those psalms of lament, we hear the same sentiment of God-forsakenness from the psalmist. One of the most well-known in Psalm 22, David starts the psalm with a heartfelt cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As in verse 14 of our passage, in the Psalms of Lament, the psalmist frequently expressed being forsaken by God as being forgotten, abandoned, or even rejected by God, who remains far, hides his face from them, and leaves them to suffer in real or perceived situations of extreme distress, danger, and trials. The psalmists are mocked and oppressed by their enemies. They are ill in extreme physical and emotional pain, and they are facing threats of death. When they express their feeling or even experience of being forsaken, with the question of why, why have you forsaken me? 
they communicate their agonizing inability to see God at work in their particular circumstances. For these sufferers, why or how long is a real question that only God can answer. That cry of agony is not and should not be simply canceled out by the praises and thanksgiving that usually come at the end of the Psalms of Lament. No, the question, why have you forsaken me, voices a real complaint and even protest against what they believe to be God's abandonment. Nonetheless, even in their complaints and protests, psalmists, as Zion does in verse 14, addresses God as my God. In Psalm 22, not just once, but it's emphatically repeated, my God, my God. And in verse 14, Zion says, my Lord. It is this address to my God or my Lord that reveals the psalmist and Zion's personal relationship with the very God by whom they feel forgotten and forsaken. And it is this expression, my God or my Lord, that guarantees that it is their cries are not one of hopelessness, but one of faith, even when their faith is almost smashed into the ground. As biblical scholars like Richard Balcom note, even the anguished question, why have you forsaken me, is an almost a desperate appeal to the faithfulness of God. It hangs on to the possibility that even at this extreme moment, God will prove trustworthy and deliver the psalmist. That is why David can ultimately confess in Psalm 22, 24, quote, and he, God, did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me but heard when I cried to him. God heard David's cry in the midst of his forsakenness, and God intervened on his behalf. And that is the very promise of God in the rest of our passage, verses 15 through 18. God vehemently refutes Zion's complaint that God has forsaken her and forgotten her. God's enduring love, unfailing love, runs deeper than even the strongest of all human bonds, that of a mother with her nursing child. God asks in verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion? for the child of her womb? Of course, the expected answer is no. But God says even human mothers may forget their own children, but God never does because God is God. And this God 
will redeem and restore Zion through the servant. Now going back to verses 1 through 13. Then the question is, who is the servant? From the beginning of the Jesus movement, Jesus' followers have always identified the messianic servant in Isaiah as Jesus Christ. He's the one in verse 4 who could identify with the very human feelings of frustration and futility. He's the one in verse 7, the lowly, despised one, even dying a shameful criminal, criminal's death on the cross. When Jesus died, what had he accomplished? Apparently nothing. His life had been futile, vain, by every measure of this world. And he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same cry of David's in Psalm 22.1, as you all know. Both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark record that Jesus' cry of God-forsakenness follows three hours of darkness over the entire land. The darkness in the Old Testament typically refers to the state of the dead. On the cross, Jesus has entered and experienced this universal darkness as he faced his death, which was the ultimate place of abandonment experienced by all. If so, Jesus, with this cry of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With this cry, Jesus identified himself with all those who had experienced God-forsakenness on their behalf, not just his own. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Servant of God, the Savior of the world, voiced and summed up the same anguished question of the multitude of the faithful believers through history, near and far, who had felt and experienced, and who feel now and will have felt God-forsakenness in solidarity with them. In solidarity with the persecuted Christians and churches throughout the world, in solidarity with those who experience excruciating pains and chronic and acute illnesses, and with those who are tormented, tormenting depression and loneliness, with those who face undescribable tragedies and injustice and even lost their loved ones in human oppression, with those who are feeling that they are there's just no way out. And with those who are experiencing and grieving over severed relationships, Jesus, God's son, God's chosen servant, summed them up all in his cry. It's a cry of complete identification with our vulnerable humanity bearing the full weight and terror 
of God-forsakenness. At the same time, however, like that of David, Jesus' cry was also a cry of ultimate fidelity to God as the only one who perfectly knows, understands, and loves the Father. Then what happened? Jesus died. He died. In many of Psalms of Lament, when the psalmists cry out in their God-forsakenness, God hears their cries, delivers them from death, and vindicates them and their praise and thanksgiving at the end. But in Jesus' case, when he cries out in his own God-forsakenness, God the Father does not deliver him from death, but God the Father delivers Jesus in death by raising him up from death. Jesus' death and resurrection abolish the sting of death, the last enemy. Jesus' vindication then comes only through death, by conquering death, the state of ultimate God-forsakenness, which demonstrates God's ultimate faithfulness to the Son, Jesus Christ, and all of the God-forsaken. Thus, Jesus' identification with the God-forsaken on the cross and in his death turns out to be the greatest assurance of God's presence with the God-forsaken and the greatest sign of God's power over the terror of God-forsakenness. Indeed, Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and his God-forsaken death on the cross are the culminating acts of God's self-revelation and self-giving love. And this is God's unfailing love, the very love God has persistently promised and displayed to Zion. And the very love God still relentlessly promises and displays to God's children, including us. What's our response to this love? Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.